Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. One more time. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. That chorus, and it's almost the words get stuck in my throat every time. As we sing, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. And you know what what came into my head as I was singing that this morning? My wife. I thought about Cheryl and I thought, you know, I love her. I love her desperately. But there is no greater thing than knowing Jesus. And I, I was just reminded again that as much as I love her, as much as I love my kids, as much as I love our fellowship, as much as I love my friends, and I love living in the Northwest, and I love all the blessings and all that God has provided in my life, I would give it all up only for knowing Jesus. Knowing Him, there, there is no greater thing. Lord, as we just consider a singular verse this morning, I pray that You would open our eyes even further to see the greater picture of Jesus. And Lord, to move beyond pictures and images and and, uh, impressions, but into relationship, into deep and real relationship. Because knowing You is, is the best that we can have. The greatest. There is no greater thing. And we want to know You. We want to know You beyond all the trappings of our flesh. We want to know You in our spirit. And we want to know You in our souls. And yes, Lord, we want to know You in our bodies. To see You. To to touch You. To be in contact with You. We know, Lord, a day is coming where that reality will take place in a way that, that we have not yet experienced. But until then, Lord, we pray that we might see with eyes of faith and really know Jesus, really walk with You. And, and Lord Jesus, to count our relationship with You above all other things that nothing else can compare. All the best of our lives cannot compare to knowing You, Lord Jesus. And so I pray for that blessing as we open up this morning and even as we walk through the next few days, weeks, months, however long we have, Lord, As we are in the Gospel of Mark, I pray that we would know you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now we opened up Mark on Wednesday night. We're going to go back and think through a few things. If you were here Wednesday, I'm just going to uh, double up a few things. Make sure it's it's really seated in. If you weren't here Wednesday, you'll get to be caught up. So some things will be repeated. Some things are new. One of the things I did not share Wednesday is that the Gospel according to Mark is the single most translated book in history. Now the Bible obviously is the most translated book, but of the books within Scripture, the book within the book, Mark is more translated than any other book internationally, globally, throughout all of history. This book is the one. This tends to be the go-to book for missionaries when they will go overseas, when they begin to try to translate the Bible into other languages. Mark is a go-to book for a lot of reasons, uh, one of which is simply that Mark is pretty simple Greek, uh, pretty straightforward, common Greek. There's a lot of Aramaic in Mark, and there are reasons for that. There's Latin in Mark, there are reasons for that. Mark, though himself a Jew, wrote from the perspective or to the perspective of a people who were not Jewish. And so there's explanation in Mark of Jewish custom that you don't have in some of the other Gospel accounts. 
the most translated book, the Greek heading, Kata Marcon. Kata Marcon was added to the text sometime after 125 AD, but all the evidence points to Mark as the writer of this Gospel. He's not named anywhere in the Gospel, not named in this account, but he's mentioned ten times in the New Testament under the name of Mark, or you may also have heard, John Mark. He has both names. We know his mother's name. Mark's mother's name was Mary. Her house was opened. We think often, but we have at least one instance where we can see it was opened for prayer and for fellowship. Obviously a large enough home in Jerusalem, so she was probably well off. Perhaps a widow. We don't know anything of Mark's father. But her home was open for prayer, And we see this right after Peter's miraculous angelic release from prison. You may remember the story, Peter is in prison for preaching the gospel. And suddenly in the middle of the night, an angel wakes him up and says, Come on, what would you do? He got up and he went. And makes his way to a house. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, tells us he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. Where there were gathered together many who were praying. It's a great story because they're sitting there praying for his release. Peter knocks on the door. A girl comes up. uh, Rhonda, I believe, or Rhoda, doesn't matter, comes up to the door. young girl sees Peter, is so excited, slams the door in his face and runs back and says, Peter's here! (laughs) And nobody believes her. The very thing they're praying for, no one buys it. How human. How like us. So, Mark's mother, there, a house in Jerusalem. That's why he's sometimes called John Mark. By the way, John is his Hebrew name. Mark is his Roman name. Another indication that his family was well off, there was Roman citizenship there for him to be named John Mark. So he's called by both names, and often the name is used depending on where he is or or who are being uh, talked to. Mark was not one of the twelve apostles but was certainly a young man strongly impacted by Jesus, possibly present, in fact, I think he was present, trailing after the Lord in his last week before the crucifixion. The early church fathers unanimously assigned this book to Mark. So if you go down in the annals of history, and I shared this on Wednesday, we have written proof from a man named Papias. Papias was a disciple of John the Apostle. And Papias learned from John and wrote that John had told him that Mark was the author of the book of Mark, the Gospel according to Mark. Papias wrote that in 110 A.D. Now don't let the the date throw you off. 110 A.D. That was 50 years after Mark wrote the Gospel, which was only 25 years after Jesus walked the earth. So this all happened very quickly after the occurrence. I don't know how many of you have read the story uh, Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. It's a great, great story of, of a survivor in uh, World War II and especially how he came to Christ. It's an amazing story. And she writes this of a man who is still alive right now, but the primary part of his story happened in the 40s. Well, that was 60 years ago. How can we trust that she's accurate? <laughs> See, we don't have any question. There's no concern as to who wrote the book, who it was about. We get that. And same with Mark. So Papias, disciple of John, said Mark wrote this book. It was written by Mark. Papias also tells us it was written by Mark based on the preaching of Peter in Rome. Hence all of the Latin 
And hence the non-Jewish approach to this teaching. You imagine Peter, and don't you love how God works? By the way, Peter becomes the apostle. He's the apostle to the Jews, and yet he ends up preaching to Gentiles in Rome. What God does so often. So the source for this was the apostle John telling Papias, Papias writing down that Mark wrote the gospel based on Peter's preaching in Rome. You got all that. And it's no wonder that Peter and Mark would share a bond later on. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Peter writes, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. My son Mark. Peter has an affection for Mark. And so most conservative scholars, for many other reasons I won't go into this morning, they agree that this book, the Gospel according to Mark, is the first and the earliest of all four Gospel accounts. That it truly does come first. Why isn't it put first in our Bibles? Well, there's all kinds of reasons why our Bibles are in the order they are. But Mark being the earliest, probably in the mid-50s. Okay, so no doubt Mark enjoyed early rock and roll. Mid-50s. This opening sentence, however, is not to be skipped over. In fact, it can be read just as an introduction to the book. It is far bigger than that. Let me read it again. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Mark put pen to parchment. And in so doing, he takes off like a sprinter out of the blocks when the starter pistol is fired. And if you were here Wednesday night, and we took a while to do this, but the first 45 verses of Mark's book, chapter 1, He just blazes through. It's amazing how much happens in that chapter. And how many times, 11 times you hear the word, Bible students, what is the word you hear so often in Mark? Immediately. Immediately Immediately this happened, and immediately that happened, and immediately, and then immediately, just one after another, 42 times in the Gospel, Mark says immediately. 11 times in the first chapter alone, he just explodes out of the blocks. He doesn't wander around. He doesn't stay there at one place. He moves quickly. He declares the Gospel in verse 1. And he launches into a brief description of the Gospel forerunner, John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus. And if you skip down to verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending upon him, and a voice came out of heaven, the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And in those two verses, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all in the same place at the same time. Pretty cool. And verse 12 says, Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Impelled or drove. So the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness, but it happens quickly, immediately, John says. If you skip down, verse 18 tells us that that Jesus saw Simon and Andrew. And immediately they left their nets and followed Him. A little further on, Jesus sees James and John, His cousins. And immediately He called them, verse 20. Skip on down to verse 22. Your translation may say just then, but it's the same word, euthus, in the Greek. Immediately there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. And Jesus there in the synagogue calls the spirit out of him, drives it out of him. It throws the man to the ground and he stands up and the spirit's gone and, and he's clean and the people are absolutely amazed. And verse 28 tells us, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Verse 29 doesn't leave it out. Immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Peter's house would have been right down just 
just down toward the water, really, in Capernaum from where the synagogue was. Maybe a one or two minute walk. So they just wander on down there. They go in, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Verse 30 says, immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. So this one thing after another, and so much packed in to the opening of this chapter, verse 42, Jesus has just seen a a leper who asked for forgiveness and for actually for healing. Jesus touches him. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. In verse 43, he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And we see as the chapter rounds out in verse 45, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. And I just wanted to prove that we could do the chapter in less than an hour and a half. Mark hits the ground running and just lays all this out to to where there's just a barrage of immediacy of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It is relentless. And the Gospel's like that. We will be done before you even realize we've started. 16 chapters, 16 weeks, in, out, you're done. And you realize you have just walked with Jesus. However, in all of this haste, I want to encourage you this fall to pause like Jesus. In the midst of busyness, in the midst of all of your craziness, and this is a crazy opening to a Gospel because Jesus is just going everywhere, doing everything. and The the pressure on Him must have been intense. But in verse 35 we see, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Now we know from the prophet Isaiah chapter 50 that Jesus did this as a practice, that this was every morning He would do this. But it's interesting to me, it's the only time in all the Gospels where it specifically tells us Jesus went out alone to pray in the morning. There's an instance in Luke where he prayed all night long. We get that too. This is the only time it says he went out early in the morning. And yet we have this picture of him praying early, don't we? We should. Because it was common practice to Jesus. Why is it here in the first chapter of Mark? Because that's how you deal with the haste of ministry. I'm sure Wednesday night, the king's business requires haste. And it does. There should be an an urgency and an immediacy to our sharing of the gospel. We should know that we're living in the last days. Recognize we have friends and family members that will go to hell if Jesus showed up today. There should be an immediacy about bringing the good news and the truth of Jesus Christ to people in this world. And yet, if all you do is live by that immediacy, you're going to fry yourself. How do you deal with it? How do you handle it? How do you discern when you're supposed to share Or where you're supposed to share about Jesus. You pause. You take time. You wait before the Lord just as Jesus did. And you listen to His leading. Just as Jesus did. We're going to take a chapter a week as I've said. But Sundays we're going to try and slow up. You know, as we're going verse by verse on Wednesday nights, we'll come in here on Sunday morning and try and slow up. And this morning, we're just going to look at the first verse. Just one verse today. I want you to pause and think this one through so that we will have the energy to bring the king's business the gospel with haste to a lost world the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ son of god the beginning 
In the 19th century, Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species, but you know for all the commotion that it caused and is still causing, it overlooks a single, simple issue. It doesn't deal with origin. It doesn't truly deal with origin. That's the one thing that happens to be left out from the title, The Origin of Species, and yet Darwin talks about his theory of evolution and and the shifting from one species to another, and that's fine. I disagree with him completely, yet, however, he calls it the origin of species. And the reality is, something had to start it. Something had to truly be the origin Six centuries earlier, in the the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas wrote his Summa Theologiae. And in it he concluded or included his five proofs of the existence of God. Proof number one he called the ex motu. The ex motu, which is the unmoved mover. Aquinas says there has to be a God. Why is that? Because there has to be something that started the ball rolling. The ball can't just always have been rolling. And you know that just from physical evidence in your own homes. Take a ball, set it on the carpet, and see what happens. It's not going anywhere. You've got to do something. Something's got to move it. Aquinas wrote, If that by which it is put in motion be itself put in motion, then this also must needs be put in motion by another, and that by another again. But this cannot go on to infinity. Because then there would be no first mover. And consequently, no other mover, seeing that subsequent movers move only inasmuch as they are put in motion by the first mover. You got it? I mean, it's funny. This is what the philosophers do. All these big words to say, push the ball and it will roll. This is what I would have written. You know? He says, as the staff moves only because it is put in motion by the hand... Therefore, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover, ex motu, put in motion by no other, and this, Aquinas says, everyone understands to be God. I think he's right. At first I thought, well, sadly, Thomas Aquinas, everyone doesn't understand this to be God. I think everyone does. I just think people don't want to admit it. The ex motu, the unmoved mover. Of course, he wasn't completely original in that. Aquinas wasn't. In the 4th century B.C., Aristotle came along and he called this the immovable mover. The immovable mover, one who begins all other things. But between Aristotle and Aquinas, and long before Darwin, a common fisherman named John wrote the following in the 1st century A.D. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Because darkness has a lot of trouble seeing, perceiving the immovable mover. John opens up his gospel somewhat, um, somewhat philosophically, poetically. And you might ask, well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Well, well, who's the He, John? And down in verse 14, John tells us, He, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus, the immovable mover. The Greek word that Mark uses when he says the beginning is arche. 
A-R-C-H-E, if you want to jot it down or if you're uh, transliterating. It means the beginning, but it also means the origin. There's your origin of species, Darwin. His name is Jesus. There's your immovable mover, R-K, the beginning. Or the origin, or a person or thing that commences all other things. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 tells us the same thing. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 119, verse 160 tells us Thy Word is true from the beginning, and every one of Thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So you can know that this Word is true. Why am I sitting so long on these first two words, or the single word beginning, the beginning? Listen, Mark is not talking about the beginning of the world. Nor is he talking about the beginning of his book. This is not an introductory line. He's not giving us a time frame. He is giving us a title. The beginning. As Jesus would say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. It's, it's me. This Greek word arche is written here without a definite article. Now I know many of you saw that. Without a definite article in the Greek, what does that mean? For us lay scholars, it simply means this. Mark is referring to a specific beginning. This is the beginning of the Gospel itself. In other words, here is where the good news begins. Take Jesus out of the picture and you have no beginning of the Gospel. He is the beginning. His appearance on planet Earth, when He was first born in that stable... His appearance marked the beginning because He Himself is the beginning. And this is so significant because it's what the prophets only had visions of, only dreamed about. As we studied through Isaiah over the last year, the best we could do with Jesus was talk about what He was going to be. Now in the Gospel according to Mark, we're not talking about what Jesus was going to be, we're talking about who He is. We're talking about what He did, what He accomplished, and what He continues to do and accomplish in your life, in my life, today. And it all starts right here. This is the beginning. The ball is rolling. Compared to the other Gospels, Matthew starts with the genealogy and the birth of Christ. Luke opens his book with a meticulous accounting. He says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us..." just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. By the way, Mark's not always consecutive. The stories in Mark sometimes are placed thematically more than they are as an actual, this is the order of all things, because Mark is presenting Jesus, who is in and of himself the beginning of the Gospel. John, when he wrote his Gospel, waited 60 years before writing. And he predates creation to declare Jesus was there in that beginning. He does it again in John's uh, first letter. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he says what was from the beginning. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. Mark, however, unlike John going all the way back predating the beginning, or or Matthew going back to the beginning as in the birth of Jesus, or Luke going back and getting all those eyewitness accounts, Mark comes along 
And he goes directly to the sandals on the ground. We might say in military term today, boots on the ground. Sandals on the ground. Marks us the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It began when? At the baptism of Jesus. That's when suddenly all that had been dreamed about, all the visions, all that had been prophesied and foretold, came to be. Truly set out. The immovable mover is now on the move. The immovable mover of our eternal salvation. Secondly, the beginning of the Gospel. The beginning of the Gospel, that Greek word euangelion, where we get our word evangelism. The beginning of the Gospel. And I shared Wednesday, the Gospel is not a story. The Gospel is not a narrative. It was a unique literary form in the first century. And the Romans literally used it to describe the rise of an emperor to a throne. The euangelion was a celebrated rise A proclamation, if you will. And so I love that the apostles grabbed hold of it. The Spirit said, use that word. Because that's the correct word. The rise of an emperor to his throne. The rise of the Christ. The proclamation of Jesus' power to save and his rising as the king. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. These are all proclamations. Therefore, these are euangelions. They are gospel. Isaiah 9, 7 tells us, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the proclamation. Let me tell you something. The Gospel is not a story that you hold to yourself. You cannot hold a proclamation in. A proclamation is something that is declared. It is shouted out. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so by the time Mark penned this account, the early Christians had already formalized the use of the word euangelion, gospel, to describe the message of their mission, which was the proclamation of Jesus Christ. A proclamation that is far greater than hope for the next four years. It's the proclamation of Jesus' eternal saving kingship. Okay, side note, i got to tell you this. I had an answer to prayer this morning. I've been praying for a long time, struggling with how to deal with this whole election cycle. What do you do? You've got two men. You have Barack Obama, who on the one hand claims to be a Christian, but there are many who believe he's Muslim, and he himself claimed to be. Then there's Mitt Romney, who's a Mormon. I looked at that and I said, how can I vote for a Mitt Romney? Back during the... the, uh, Primaries. I'm going, boy, I hope it's someone else because I don't know how I could vote for him. And I'm looking at Barack Obama going, I don't know how I could vote for him and I'm just being transparent here. Here's my answer to prayer. I prayed, Lord, what do I do? Do I just sit this one out? I have never sat out an election since I was 18. Well, my answer came this morning. Shouldn't we just vote biblically? There is a biblical way to vote in this election between these two men. A biblical 
way. One, regardless, you know, think about it this way. If we were Daniel the prophet and we were living in Babylon, Daniel served under four pagan emperors. Nebuchadnezzar perhaps became a believer because of Daniel. The last one, Cyrus, he would send the Jewish people back to the land being an instrument of the Lord. These guys were not Jews. What if we had no Christian whatsoever, no one who any, even had any instance or understanding of God to vote for? What if we lived in Iran and it was the, it, between two Muslim candidates? What are you going to do if you could vote there? <laughs> and so here we have a choice. And we have a choice to vote biblically. And I encourage you to vote biblically. What does that mean, Rick? It means vote for life. Because life is biblical. It means vote for the freedom of religion, which has been severely restricted in ways that I won't take the time to go into over the last few years. It means vote for truth. I know how I'm going to vote. (laughs) That's great. Here's the bottom line, brothers and sisters, before you are an American, even before that, you're a Christian. And you have a citizenship in heaven and Jesus Christ, He is our King. And He's coming back. And we can trust that He knows what He's doing and place our trust fully in Him. The Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel, the proclamation of Jesus' eternal saving kingship. Do you want eternal salvation? If you do, it begins and ends with Jesus Christ. I should say it begins and never ends with Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, this message is for you. The message is for every follower of Jesus. And it began, and we now run with this one simple phrase, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. If you don't know you're saved this morning, I hope you will consider this over the next few minutes here. If you are a Christian, the Gospel is your testimony. Run with it. Run with it. Remember, Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to, and I love how Paul says this, according to my Gospel. Paul says, this is my Gospel, I own it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is your gospel, your proclamation, your announcement, your declaration to bring to the world. This belongs to us because we have been saved by it. My gospel. And when we get down to it, salvation is an intensely personal thing. It's even more personal than voting. Your salvation. This is the beginning of the gospel number three of Jesus. Of Jesus. Jesus, the Greek alliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua, who we learned and talked about in Isaiah, means God saves. In fact, Yeshua is the word, the Hebrew word for salvation. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good tidings of happiness, who announces salvation. That is, who announces Yeshua. That is your job. That is my task to announce Yeshua. And who says, 
To Zion, your God reigns. In fact, I can tell you, Christians, we have a twofold task. To tell non-believers, Gentiles, that the gospel is Yeshua. To announce Yeshua. And to say to Zion, that is to the Jewish people, your God reigns. Your God reigns. Jesus is not the impersonal God calling out from some distant, palatial, inhuman estate, follow me. And we look out there and vaguely wonder if we will ever have any inkling of who this great God out there is, this cosmic force. You know what Jesus does? Jesus comes along and He closes the relationship gap. Jesus arrives and He makes God approachable. Jesus is the good news. Jesus. You know, I've I've noticed that when people talk about God, there's a tendency to distance yourself. I know Christians who will refer often to God, but there's a distance there. It's really hard to be distant when you're talking about Jesus. Jesus brings familiarity. And Jesus brings closeness. My wife doesn't refer to me as that human. (laughs) Mostly. After 30 years of knowing Cheryl, I still love her to say my name. There is something when she speaks my name, as opposed to, hey you, or even honey, or sweetheart, when she says Rick. When I hear those that word come out, my name come out of her lips, it, it breeds closeness. It draws me to her. It won't draw me to you if you use my name, because it just doesn't sound the same. Okay? <laughs> just want to clarify that point. But Jesus, Jesus. Jesus said in John 16.24, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Christians, can I encourage you something this morning? Refer to Him as Jesus and refer to Him often. If you're feeling distant from the Lord, if in your walk you feel like God is, is not where you are, why don't you start... Referring to him, calling him Jesus. Cheryl and I were actually in a discussion about a situation, a young lady she was counseling last week. And this young lady, I had noticed this very thing, has a tendency to refer to Jesus as God, which is great. He is God, but God, 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 and well, God this or God that and God this. And I said, Cheryl, you know what? Just talk to her about Jesus. Tell her to... Call upon Jesus. Let's get personal because the gospel is personal. It is the gospel of Jesus. If you're distant, call his name. Note this. We see Jesus in action in Mark's account. Throughout the book, we see Jesus as this very personable man who heals mother in laws. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 31. He touches lepers, which is still one of the most stunning things in Scripture. Before he heals the leper, he touches the leper. That's personal. Here's a man who probably hadn't been touched in years. And Jesus makes contact. He is the one who forgives the sins of a paralytic and then puts strength back into his legs, even if it costs a new roof. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. It's Jesus who is grieved in the synagogue at the hardness of the religious leaders' hearts. And out of that grief, 
heals a man whose hand is withered on the Sabbath, knowing it's going to stir things up, probably earlier than he wanted to. And yet he's grieved in his heart, chapter 3 tells us. How personal is that? It's Jesus who calls the apostles. Mark's the only one who tells us this. Chapter 3, verse 14. He calls the apostles so that they would be with Him. That's the number one reason. And then so that it could do ministry and cast out demons. But number one, Jesus was looking for companions. Friends. It's Jesus who calls storms and fears. It's Jesus who feeds the hungry, blesses the children, runs off the money changers who are ripping off His people. It's Jesus who notices out of all the clamoring crowd in Jerusalem the poor widow who drops her last few cents in the offering. Jesus sees that. Jesus, He's personal. It's Jesus, and Mark's the only one who tells us this, who sent a special message to Peter via the angels at the tomb. After Peter's epic failure over crucifixion weekend, denying Jesus three times, Mark 16, verse 7 says, Go, tell His disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see Him just as He told you. Don't just tell the disciples. Make sure you tell Peter specifically. Well, why is that? Because Jesus loved Peter. Jesus is personal. It was Jesus who took human abuse, mocking and flogging and crucifixion because He personally cares about your eternal condition. And we would distance Him just calling Him Elohim, just referring to Him as Adonai, or or even Yahweh, the Great I Am. God came to earth in flesh to be Jesus so we could get close so that we could be in a personal relationship. This is my Gospel. Because you know what? This is my Jesus. And He loves me. But, just when you thought Jesus was one of the boys, note that this is the beginning of of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the other side of it. He is Christos in the Greek. The Anointed One. The alliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach. The Messiah. He is the prophesied Messiah of Israel and the world. He is the awesome coming King. Jesus. Jesus with human empathy. Christ with divine power. And He has both. Turn over to Mark chapter 14 for a moment. Mark chapter 14, verse 60. They've just been bringing in all kinds of false accusations against Jesus before the Sanhedrin and before the rulers of the Jews, the chief priests and the council. We're told in verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, Do not answer. What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christos? Are you Mashiach? the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus said, note this, I am. I am. And you shall see, and then he quotes, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Indeed, I am Christ. 
I am the anointed one. I am your Messiah. And if I could read into what Jesus is thinking, I am, though you will not believe it. I am the Christ. And you need to understand, the quote that Jesus gives there is from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel 7.13, a direct reference where Daniel is having an amazing vision of the Ancient of Days. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the Ancient of Days. I am not the 33-year-old man simply that you see before you. I am the Ancient of Days. Behold, you will see me coming with the clouds and with great power. And of course, the Sanhedrin, knowing their Bible, would know exactly what he was referring to. His own greatness, his power as the Christ the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And why does He say that? Because Jesus Christ bears in Himself the very eternal nature and character of God. Number five, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Son of God. Eight times this name is conferred upon Jesus in this book. Twice by God the Father. In chapter 1, verse 11, and in chapter 9, verse 7. Twice the demons will refer to Jesus as Son of God. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 7. Three times Jesus Himself will say, I am the Son of God. Chapter 13, verse 32. 14, verse 36. And 14, verses 61 and 62 that we just read. Son of God. And finally, in the stunning realization of a Gentile Roman centurion at Calvary, Chapter 15, verse 39, tells us when the centurion who was standing in front of him saw the way that he breathed his last and said, truly this man was the Son of God. Even the centurion saw it. Son of God. Isaiah told us in Isaiah 9.6, a son will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But what does it really mean for Jesus to be called Son of God? This has tripped up Christians and especially when we look at it from a Western cultural mindset. If he's Son of God, then how can he be God? And that's where we get confused. We misunderstand what it means. Kenneth Woost, in his word studies in the Greek New Testament, I share Wednesday night, every believer ought to have these four volumes on your shelf. Excellent, one of the best treatments of New Testament Greek that is available, Kenneth Woost, W-U-E-S-T. And he writes the following about Jesus, the Son of God. He says, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God, must be the Son. Why? Well, the prophets tell us He would be, for one thing. That Messiah would be Son. But then he says this, note it. The word son is without the article in the Greek text. Okay? It's not a son. In fact, note this in verse 1 of Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the son of God. The word the doesn't belong there. It's son of God. Take the article out. He's not a son. He's not even the son. He is uniquely son of God. This speaks of his character. It speaks of his very nature. Wu says emphasis is therefore upon character or nature. Jesus Christ is Son of God by nature. That is, and note this, he proceeds by eternal generation from the Father in a birth which never took place because he always was. 
I like how that reads. He possesses co-eternally the same essence as God the Father. I've said this before. My son Corey is, yeah, he's my son. And you might say, well, of the Crawford clan, Rick is, you know, the, the leader. Well, actually, I guess my dad would be. But then I would be, and then my son would be. But Corey sits in a lesser place at this point because I'm, I'm still living. So he's only my son. And people look at Jesus that way. Well, he's only God's son, so he's not really the same essence as God. Jesus, as Son of God, is the same essence of God as Corey is human, the same essence of his human father. I'm a human, Corey's a human. God is God, Jesus, as Son of God, is God. Do you understand that? It's not a lesser position. He proceeds from the Father. And the Hebrew mindset, the Hebraic mindset, understands Son as the absolute heir bearing all the authority, all the inheritance of the Father. When the Father hands it over to the Son, the Son now has the power the Father had. The Son is of the same essence of the Father. That's what Woost is telling us here. He says the article is also absent before the word God, showing that absolute deity as such is in view. Turn over to Mark chapter 12, quickly. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Mark 12, 35. We're told back in chapter 1 that the people were amazed at his teaching. That they're saying, he teaches like none of our guys. And none of our scribes, none of our rabbis teach like this. Why is that? Because the rabbis were quoters. They always said, Hillel said this. Rabbi Shammai said this. But Jesus says, I say to you, He speaks as one with authority. Well, here's one of those instances, verse 35. Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ, Mashiach, is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David, Jesus says, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowds enjoyed listening to him. (laughs) You can imagine the people just hanging on every word going, Yeah, yeah, how come that? How can David call his son his Lord? How can David refer to the Lord, Yahweh, in the translation there, it's Yahweh said to Adonai, Wow. Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh said to Adonai, who's Adonai? Yahweh, God, right? David, by the Holy Spirit, in Psalm 110, verse 1, David says, and Jesus points out, that God, Yahweh, said to God, Adonai, and David says, you know who Adonai is? Messiah. That's Jesus. Adonai is Jesus. By the way, this will really knock your socks off. In Acts chapter 16, we find out when David got that vision. When David overheard that conversation. David, living a thousand years before Christ, didn't hear the conversation a thousand years before Christ. He heard the conversation, oh, about 10, 15 years after Christ. Because the conversation, Acts 16 tells us, took place after the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus resurrected and ascended back to heaven, the Lord said to my Lord. That's when that happened. David heard it a thousand years earlier. (laughs) Point is this. 
In that overhearing, God is talking to Himself. God the Father is talking to God the Son. Yahweh is talking to Adonai. And then David just listens into this conversation. Jesus quotes him, pointing out that He is Jesus, that He is Christ, that He is Son of God, and He is the beginning of good news. I have one more thing to tell you. Mark begins his account. But you might want to ask the question, why did the Holy Spirit choose Mark to write this accounting of the Gospel? Why Mark? I understand Matthew. You know, he was one of the twelve apostles. That makes sense. I understand Luke. Because Luke was equipped as, as an investigative reporter. He was tasked with going out and getting eyewitness accounts and compiling them in his Gospel. It's a wonderful approach. I understand John. John was also an apostle, first of the apostles, or among the first four called, and he was the last to die. And John was the closest to Jesus and so waited 60 years pondering, thinking about his relationship to Jesus, thinking about who Christ was, recognizing Son of God, and writes his gospel about God in the flesh. Why Mark? Why Mark? Mark does show up, by the way, I believe in the book of Mark. We don't see him named, But there is one reference, it's only in the Gospel of Mark, it's a very personal reference that really the only person who could have known it is the person to whom it happened. And he writes in Mark 14, verse 50, they all left him and fled. They're in Gethsemane on that dark night. Judas has just betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Peter has wildly flung his sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus has picked up that ear off the ground, that little bloody fleshy thing, and sticks it back on his head and heals him. Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. And the apostles freak out. And they run. And in that moment, Mark writes, Mark 14.51, A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, and he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Now, some Bible teachers, they think, well, perhaps Mark was in bed at his mom's house there in Jerusalem, and he heard the commotion going by, and he grabbed a sheet and wrapped it around himself, as, as would be, you know, if you're just going to go out to the mailbox or whatever, just wrap up. He goes out and follows them to Gethsemane, and that's why he's there. Now, we don't know that. That's just surmise. But we do know Mark was a young man. He could have at that point even been a preteen, 11, 12, 13 years old. And he's there in the garden and he sees this happen and he escapes, he flees, he runs away. The early church fathers all wrote and believed that this nameless naked teenager was John Mark. But Mark is not only the teenager who fled. Mark is also the missionary who quit. He's the one who gave up. He's the one who couldn't handle it, couldn't take the pressure on their first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas go. And Barnabas says, hey, I want to bring along my young protege. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10 tells us that Mark was probably Barnabas' either cousin or nephew. So he comes with them. But he ducks out and he runs back home before they really even get started. Acts 13, verse 13 says, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and they came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now you just read that verse, you might think, oh, well, Mark had to run home. Maybe there was a problem at home. Mama needed him. Something's going on, right? This did not sit well with Paul. Paul was all about the mission. And you don't compromise the mission. 
And he was angry about this. We're told in Acts 15.37 as they prepared for their second missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark. He wanted to take him along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And we learn that Paul will now take Silas and Luke and head off in a different direction. These two brothers could not minister together because they were in such disagreement over this young man, Mark, who listened blew it. He quit. He's a teenager who ran scared. He's the young man on the missionary journey who ran home to Mama. But that's not the end of the story. Because Mark ends up, Philemon 24 tells us, co-laboring with Paul for the Gospel. I think that's marvelous. In Paul's last letter to Timothy, he said in 2 Timothy 4.11, Pick up Mark. Bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. This young man's life, if not for Jesus, this young man's life would have been marked by immaturity, fleeing, and quitting. That was his MO. That's how he began ministry. He dropped the ball. That was said about me. I was interning as a youth pastor down in California. After my freshman year of college, I was filled with visions and ideas of what ministry would be. It was the worst ministry summer of my life. And the senior pastor at the end of the summer had this to say to me, Rick, you dropped the ball. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I'm like 20 years old without a clue. I dropped the ball. That hit me like a ton of bricks. I went back to college and I said, I don't know if I can do this. I interned the next summer. It wasn't much better. So I went back to college and changed my major to psychology so I could figure myself out. (laughs) And when that didn't work, God said, no, no, no. It was ministry all along. But I felt marked. Have you ever felt marked as a failure? You ever felt marked as a loser? Marked as one who can't, who can't follow through, who can't live up to the standard or the calling that's on your life. I blew it. I will always blow it. Why does the Lord even want me? I don't have any place in this. How many of you have ever run away from an opportunity to share Jesus? How many of you have gotten cold feet when it comes to the Gospel? Or dropped the ball? Or bailed out? Or given up? Mark did Mark did. And yet, he is the one that Jesus had other plans for. And so Mark's story in the Scriptures ends up as one of maturity and faithfulness and ministry. And gang, Jesus chose Mark to pen the first account of the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. As Brian said just this last week, he is the God of second chances. That's why Mark wrote this Gospel, in my opinion. Jesus is saying to you and to me, we're we're holding this book in our hands, the most translated book in history, written by a young man who was marked as a failure, but lifted up by Jesus and used as a great leader in the early church. We are indebted to this young man who wrote down such a stirring account that has changed so many lives that the Spirit has used to save people But it even goes a step further because 
the Gospel according to Mark is connected with two epic failures. Mark himself, but also Peter. Remember, Peter calls Mark his son. (laughs) Like father, like son. Peter ran away in the garden. Peter betrayed Jesus. Peter, gang... Mark ran, Peter betrayed. Mark quit on the missionary journey. Peter lacked moral conviction. Paul will later have to get on Peter about withdrawing from the Gentiles and not being straightforward with the Gospel. And if this account truly is penned by Mark based on the preaching of Peter in Rome, then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ sits on these pages. And this Gospel is all the more touching. We begin with a book written by a guy who needed Jesus just as desperately as every single one of us. And as we read through and we see Jesus through the eyes of this young man who wrote through the eyes of Peter, then we can understand something more of what it means to be saved, to be regenerated, to be matured by the grace of our God who is the God of second chances. If you are not a Christian as of this moment, I beg of you, I plead with you, let today be the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, in your life. Mark 16.16, Jesus says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. If you're a follower of Jesus but even as a follower have felt like a big L ought to be tattooed on your forehead. Feel like you are just not the kind of person who let someone else follow through. You'll show up and just hope that you get in by the skin of your teeth. Gang, you have a calling. You have a mission. You have a proclamation. And the good news of Jesus is that His grace is ongoing. His grace continues to wash us and to cleanse our hearts and bring us back to the message. Lord Jesus, I am so I would not be here this morning. I'm so thankful. I would not be here if you were not the God of second chances. And Lord, if I sat down and thought about it, I could mark so many times across my life that I was ready to quit, ready to give up. Father, would you erase from us this morning every person in the barn a sense of failure, and replace it with a sense of the success of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Would you personalize this for us? Even as you show us the power of Jesus to save, to change us, even from failures as of yesterday or last week or last year or in the past few years. Erase the failures, Father. And save us by the precious name of your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.